with your friends. It is good to be together. It'd be great if you can keep your Bible open as we uh, look at what this passage has to say to us. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you that you love us, that you speak through your word, and that your word is not far from us. And so, Lord, I pray tonight as uh, we listen to it uh, that you'll be with me, that I will preach it faithfully, uh, but you will also convict each of us of the things that we need to hear. Amen. One of the great questions for humanity has always been, what is the meaning of life? So if the entire universe is just a freak accident, if there is nothing behind matter or the laws of time or gravity, then there is no great meaning to life. There is no great reason for us to exist. It doesn't make our life uh, of no value. There's lots of things we value in life, including life itself. We value preserving life. We value our family. We value the pleasures of life. We value this planet that we live on. But it's all about, really, uh, if there is nothing greater than just us, it's really all just a man-made construct. It's what we make up for ourselves to make our time here worthwhile until we cease existing. And for some people, that meaninglessness, meaninglessness is actually quite comforting, because if there is no greater meaning to our existence, then I can kind of do whatever I want. There's no sort of sense of accountability for my actions. I mean, there's accountability you know, between other people, but generally, I can do what I want. For other people, of course, it leaves them in a black hole of despair. You know, we're wired for meaning. We do have an innate sense of right and wrong. And so if there is no greater purpose, then what is the point? And that leaves us despairing. But as Christians, we have a completely different starting point. There is a God behind it all. There is a reason for us to exist. And God has an end goal for his creation. And so in our passage last week in Revelation, it said this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's this brilliant picture, isn't it, of humanity sharing in the glory of God. And that future is inevitable. So it's not that God has an aspiration to achieve this end. This end will come to pass in God's timing and according to his plans. And God chooses to work in us and chooses to work through us to bring that plan to its end. We've actually got a genuine, legitimate part to play in God's plan. And so when it comes to gathering more people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, then it's not just sort of an optional extra for Christians, you know, along with a sunroof and other accessories. 
you know, this is part of our DNA. That if this is God's purpose and plan, then as God's people, we are part of it. So the passage that we read today starts with Paul grieving as he sees how hard his fellow Israelites are towards the gospel. And his people from his own nation who have grown up hearing the word of God. So in the Old Testament they were listening to the prophets and then the words of the prophets were written down in the word of God. And then Jesus came and continued to proclaim the word of God to bring it all to fulfilment. But right there, that's the stumbling block. Because they believed the Old Testament, but they simply could not believe that Jesus really was the Messiah, the Son of God, who would die on a cross. Yeah, they had a picture of what God's Messiah was going to be, and that wasn't it. And I think for many Australians, we're really not that different. So there's plenty of Australians who don't believe in God at all, uh, but plenty do. Now, if you look at the census, lots do. But it's kind of a generic view of God. Yeah, so we like the idea that God is love. Uh, we get frustrated and even angry uh, when life doesn't go our way. We're tempted to blame God or feel we've been ripped off. But we still think there is God out there. And we're hopeful that when we die, that we will go to a better place. So we kind of have that view of God. It's kind of a safe but when we get to verse 9, I think for many, that is a bridge too far. We like generic God. We're just not so keen on the real, specific God of history and the Bible. So verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I think for some it's an issue of submission, that idea that Jesus is Lord, that he calls us to follow him and he calls us to live according to his will. I think for some that is just too much. We go, you know, I like my life, I like my sin. It doesn't matter how dirty and ragged it is, it's mine and I don't want to give it up. Even for the promise of something better. And for others, it's an issue of belief. I do believe there's something greater out there. I just don't believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, like really God, come in the flesh, who died on a, a, a manky little cross in the Middle East somewhere 2,000 years ago. I just can't believe that in the bigness of history, and the bigness of the universe, that really that's what it's all about cross in the desert. And so for them, it is just too far. Whatever the answer is about God out there, that can't be it. But if God is God, then we can only come to God on his terms. And what God is offering us is life through his son. And if we accept those terms, then this passage says we are justified. So justified is a legal term. So you've got to imagine yourself in a courtroom and it's been made right before God. 
So it's not just that you know Jesus is standing beside us as our lawyer, you know, mounting a case to the Father about why he should show us mercy or why we're innocent, because clearly we're not. Jesus literally stands in our place. And he has paid the price for our sin on the cross. So there is no more charge against us. There is no more price to pay. So in academic circles, if you just like a bit of you know, lingo every now and again, they call it imputed righteousness. So it's not that we are righteous on our own, it's not that we are good, but that God stands in our place. And as we submit to Christ's lordship, he shows us a better way to live in the present. He frees us from the guilt and shame of our sin that so often overwhelms us and cripples us. And he gives us eternal life. You know, we look at this life, and I think for the most part, we're pretty keen on it. We love this life. There's a whole lot of frustrations, but there are so many good things. For the most part, we want to keep on going. But if this is God's world broken and marred by sin, imagine what he has planned in heaven, when there is no sin, when there is no brokenness. But in the interest of full disclosure, Jesus also says there will be a heavy earthly price to pay. They will hate us like they hated him. We will face persecution and ridicule, and for some, and thankfully this is our experience, but for some, they will face death for Jesus. And if we submit to Christ as Lord, recognising that he's raised from the dead, then we will be shamed in this world. We've got to expect that. But we will not be shamed before God. When we stand before God, as we trust in Christ, He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 11, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. And this is a message for everyone. Verse 12, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. So God's mission is to gather, gather a great multitude from every tribe, nation and tongue. And that's what our churches should look like. We should be a church that is full of people from different ages and generations, different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. You know, as I, I look around the room, we're, we're probably not the most ethnically diverse, clearly. But certainly across our church, across the church, we should be. We should reflect our community. Absolutely. And one of the joys of living in Greenacre, which is next to Bankstown, is actually being Anglo-Saxon heritage was the minority. And so that reflected our community. Wherever we are here, we should reflect the community where God has placed us in all of our diversity. And that means it could be anyone. As we go out and share the gospel, as we want to tell people about Jesus, who knows who God has planned to gather into his family? 
and therefore we go and tell everyone. Now, one of the great things you can do with Google uh, these days is you can put in everyone's addresses and it'll put a little dot on the map of where, where everyone lives. It's all very you know, exciting to see. You, you look at our map for our church, there's our church in the middle, it gets a little dot, and then literally there are just dots everywhere around it. Uh, there's no particular cluster of dots, there's not a cluster of dots in Shell Cove or Barilla North or uh, down in the village or Flinders or something like that. There are just dots everywhere. And that's what it should be. That we have people from our church just from all over our community. I pray that continues to happen more and more. Verse 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's pretty self-evident, isn't it? That if someone is going to hear about Jesus, then we need, Christians need, to go and tell them. And for some of you in this room, that's exactly what's happened. You, you are here tonight because your friends told you about Jesus. But we also know as we go out and do that, that there's going to be risk. And so this passage is as much about conviction and our conviction as it is about the message we proclaim. I think when it comes to following Christ, there's perhaps three things or three indicators that show our conviction perhaps more than anything else. How we use our money, how we approach death, and how we talk to other people about Jesus. Money because it is so precious to us, and to give it away comes at a genuine personal cost to our comfort and pleasure. Death because we desperately want to cling to this life telling others about Jesus because there is a real social risk. You know, we want to be liked by our friends. We don't want to risk those relationships. We don't want to be humiliated. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be socially isolated from our peer group. So there are natural instincts to seek pleasure and avoid pain then we need a very strong and compelling motivation to overcome that natural instinct. And I think the scriptures give us two really clear ones. Firstly, our love for God. Do we love God and do we want to see Him glorified? And secondly, do we love other people? Do we love other people enough that we want to see them saved, even to the point of risking our own social comfort? Are we willing to do that for the sake of the gospel? I think the temptation is to agree to both of those things, to loving God and loving other people, but still feel that it's someone else's job. Here I am, Lord. Send them. I think when we read this passage, it's also easy to look for so you might read it and say, well, Paul's talking about preaching. And preaching is what you do up the front, and I'm not a preacher, so therefore, gosh darn, I would have loved to, but it just doesn't really apply to me. 
know, it might be tempting to look at the passage and say, ah, you'll notice that some people have to be sent. And I'm not the sent. Paul is the sent. You know, perhaps our missionaries overseas, Amy and the Sparks family, or the Forrest family, they're sent. Our SRE teachers, they're sent into our schools. But we don't necessarily feel that we are the sent. In fact, it's always, almost always, someone else. Uh, the book of Luke says, um, this is how Jesus says, he said, uh, Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You know, talking about no excuses, burying your father is a good excuse. I'll put that quite high on the excuse list. But what does Jesus say? No, no. If you're following me, then I want you to be single-minded in living your life for my purposes, even when it comes at genuine sacrifice. We don't all have the same role, but we do all have a role to play. You might not be an up-the-front person. That's okay. It's not about preaching to a crowd. We're preaching, speaking, proclaiming simply to one person who's willing to hear. And each of us have been sent. You are in a family. You are in a friendship group. You have work. You have uni. You have school. You have your hobbies. There's a surf club, the bowling club, the cricket club, the soccer club. You have been sent into all of those places. And you have an opportunity in those places to share the good news of Jesus with those people. Again, I think another temptation, because we're so good at justifying ourselves, another temptation is to look and go, you know what, I'm happy to be a godly witness, you know, so I can show people by my actions that I'm different, but please don't make me speak. But we need to speak the gospel, don't we? Our actions are powerful. It's quite a famous uh, quote by a, a monk uh, by the name of Francis of Assisi, uh, where he's purported to have said, preach the gospel with words if you must. What, the, what it means is that our life is more powerful than our words. And absolutely, our life is powerful, isn't it? The way we act towards other people will either commend the gospel to them or make them look at Jesus with a new contempt. Our actions count. The way we live counts. The way we speak counts. But we don't need to drive a wedge between the way we live and speaking about Jesus. It actually needs to be both. We are saved by Jesus. We're saved by the grace of God. That's the life that we live, and that's the message we proclaim. So where do we start? I think for any Christian in the room, even when we are convinced of the need, even when we're convinced of our role in it, I think most of us don't really feel particularly well equipped for it. Might not feel you speak real good. Or, you know, once they ask questions and you don't know the answers. And so all of those fears 
can kind of well up inside us and end up paralyzing us. You know, and there's always a better time to talk about Jesus just over the horizon. If you ever feel like that, here's, a, here's four suggestions that I think are helpful to keep in mind. The first one is ultimately God is in control. So in the words of Paul, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It is our job to proclaim. But it's God who convicts, and it's God who saves. And that should provide us with an enormous relief. Because it's not about just getting exactly the right words at exactly the right time. Their eternal destiny is not relying on you doing just the right job. God is in control, and God will use even our bumbling efforts to bring about his purposes and plans. And secondly, if God is in control, then we need to pray. God chooses to work through our lives, God chooses to work through our words, and God chooses to work through our prayers. Uh, earlier this year, I went to a conference up in Sydney uh, called Base Camp. A number of people from here were there for the day. And uh, one of the guys from the front I was talking about sharing the gospel with other people. And he asked the question, how many people have you talked to about Jesus this week? Fortunately, it was kind of one of those rhetorical in your head questions. Uh, you didn't have to sort of put up, you know, five, four, three, two, one, zero. And, uh, you know, it wasn't sort of the walk of shame. Uh, but, you know, as I'm thinking in my head of how many people I've spoken to, it's kind of easy to justify why it's perhaps not quite as many as it could be or should be. But then he asked a second question. He said, how many people have you prayed for this week that you might have the opportunity to share the gospel with them and that they might respond? And for me, that's a far more confronting question because that's completely in my control. The other things I can blame, you know, circumstance. But praying, that is in my control. And there's a real challenge and a real rebuke. How are we praying for people around us? Are we praying for courage and conviction? Are we praying that they will be open to hear the gospel? Are we praying that we will have the words to speak? So can I really encourage all of us, including me, you know, be committed to praying for people by name. Now be committed in your connect groups for those who gather each week. Be praying for those people who we know because we want them to hear the gospel. Uh, number three, be known as a Christian. Because that is a great starting point. Once you are known as a Christian, that opens up all sorts of opportunities. It helps people understand why you are the way you are, why you behave the way you behave. Uh, it gives them an opportunity to ask you questions about what you believe and why. It allows you to offer to pray for them uh, as you know, they share their life and their story. I think the temptation sometimes is to think, well, I want them to get to know me a bit uh, because I don't want to freak them out with the whole Christian thing. So I'll get them to, you know, they'll get to know me, they'll realise I'm, I'm not a complete nutter. And, and then I'll tell them I'm a Christian and it just won't seem 
quite so weird. Um, but actually, that's the weirdest of all. You know, you've been you know, having this sharing life together for a while, and then all of a sudden, surprise! <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> you know, it's part of your life. It's part of who you are. So as you weave it into your conversation, this is who you are. This is what you believe in. And so when we get to the opportunity to talk about Jesus, when we get the opportunity to invite them to church or to a church event, then they won't be too surprised that as a Christian, you're inviting them to think about Christian things. But it starts with telling them that you are a Christian in the first place. And number four for tonight, let's work hard at having deeper conversations. You know, so often our conversations sit in the in the safe space of our interests. Yeah, we can talk about sport, I can talk about cycling, I can talk about surfing, I can talk about the cricket, soccer, footy. When you're really desperate, talk about the weather. Um, that only gets you so far, that's good for about 20 seconds. Uh, yeah, all, all easy stuff, nothing too confronting in it, but also pretty shallow, isn't it? Can I encourage us to go, to go deeper than just the interests and actually engage with people's values? What do they value in life? And then even deeper still, you know, what, what shapes their worldview? What shapes those values? And as you talk about those deeper things, you know, step by step by step, then it creates permission and an opportunity to share your perspective and to share the good news of Jesus. And invites them to ask you the question, what do you believe and why? I reckon the biggest challenge for this, this sermon and even this sermon series isn't so much about knowing what we need to do. I think the biggest challenge is the conviction to actually do it and having the courage of our convictions to do it. Because if we're not convinced by the gospel and if we're not convinced of our part in God's plan and if we're not convinced that people need to be saved, then everything else is for naught. We'll never go the next step. It's too risky. But if we are convinced, then can I encourage us to keep going and to redouble our efforts? Because we know what is at stake. We know the good that we have, but we also know that there's a cost, that there's a price, there's a consequence for ignoring God. And so for the sake of this life and the next, we need to get over our fears, but also we've got something good to say. It's not just avoid a threat. It's this is good. God is good. We are thankful to God for what he has done in our lives. And you know what? When you love something good in your life, you share it. You know, think about things you love in your life. Not, not, the, not even the Christian things, just the even the superficial things. You're happy to share them because they're good. And if you're convinced that God is good, if you are thankful for his grace, then let's have the courage of our convictions to share it. I think one of the good things earlier this year, uh, we did a, a mission called Jesus Is. And one of the great things about that mission was the encouragement to take one step forward. So wherever you are, what would it mean as a Christian to take one step forward in telling other people about Jesus? 
So for you, it might just be, I'm going to pray. For someone else, it might be, I'm going to tell other people I'm a Christian. And for others, it might be a deeper conversation with someone who you've already got an established relationship with. But what's one step forward? Not five step forward. Let's not go from not talking about it to stand up in the square on a soapbox and preach it, brother. Okay, that's like step three. What's one <laughs> step forward? Just one. That you could take for the sake of the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I pray that that is us. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for the grace that you show us save us, that you would gather us into your kingdom. I pray that we will have the courage and conviction to share that good news with others. So Lord, as we head out into our week this, uh, in the week ahead, Lord, open our eyes uh, to the opportunities that you have placed around us, that we might share your good news 